Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This podcast is sponsored by Amy Fox and Martin Griffel and family in memory of our mothers, Sally Fox, Zichrona Livracha, and Marion Griffel, Zichrona Livracha. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Michael Hatton on Parashat Shmot. Be sure to follow us on Spotify to get the weekly Parsha podcast. And now, Rabbi Michael Hatton. Parshat Shemot, Moshe's Choice. By the conclusion of Sefer Bereshit, the people of Israel are firmly established in the land of Goshen. Under Yosef's watchful eye and Pharaoh's gracious patronage, the Hebrews steadily grow in number and influence. They do not remain tenders of flocks only, but become landed and prosperous burghers as well. But how quickly their fortunes change with the advent of a new pharaoh, quick to exploit the hostility to the newcomers and to their success. Pharaoh marshals his followers and unleashes a series of enactments to check the Hebrews' natural growth and to curb their burgeoning commercial, political, and potentially military clout. When the imposition of a forced levy to build his store cities of Pitom and Ramses fails to achieve results, Pharaoh imposes more harsh labor upon the Hebrews. Slowly but surely, they are conscripted to perform heavy construction, back-breaking fieldwork, and a multitude of public projects, all of it carried out under the unforgiving gaze and the stinging whips of the taskmasters. But remarkably, the Hebrews remain unbowed, Accepting their bizarre and cruel fate, they plod forward, fashioning their quota of bricks and hoping for better days. Never despairing of meriting to see Pharaoh's demise, they continue to have children in great number. Alarmed, Pharaoh hatches a new and sinister plot, hoping to tilt the demographic scales in his favor he summons the midwives and orders them to surreptitiously murder the newborn male children of the Hebrews. But they refuse. Fearing God and feigning failure, they claim that the Hebrew women succeed in birthing before their arrival. Pharaoh relents, but he is not deterred. Pharaoh commanded his whole people and said, Cast every newborn boy into the river Nile, but allow the girls to live. Shemot chapter 1, verse 22. So concludes the first section of Parshat Shemot, and so begins the story of the enslavement in Egypt. With nightmarish imagery, the cruelty of the Pharaoh becomes the paradigm for the repeating tale of Israel's banishment among the nations. Welcome and prosperity, influence and success are twisted into resentment and enmity, oppression and brutality, and finally bloodshed and exile.
But always, even while our gutted dreams still smolder before crumbling to ash, there grows, there glows among the cinders the faint flicker of hope. A man from the house of Levi went and took the daughter of Levi as his wife. The woman became pregnant and bore a son. She saw that he was good, and he hid him, and hid him for three months. When she saw that she could no longer hide him, she prepared a box of reeds and smeared it with clay and pitch. Into it she placed the infant and then placed it among the rushes at the banks of the Nile. Shmot chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Soon enough, Pharaoh's daughter, who has come down to the Nile to bathe, spies the fragile box. Prying off its insubstantial lid, she finds a crying infant and immediately recognizes his Hebrew origins. Her heart overflowing with maternal pity, she resolves to preserve the child and to raise him as her own. So it is that Moshe, the deliverer and the lawgiver, is saved from certain death. But what a long path still stretches out before him, from the carefree halls of Pharaoh's magnificent palace to the rock-strewn summit of Sinai. Who can say that the Hebrew foundling will in fact grow to be their savior rather than their treacherous scourge? The Torah is silent concerning the formative years that Moshe spends in Pharaoh's court, leaving fertile and feverish minds much latitude to concoct all manner of conjectural readings of that intervening period. There is, however, a well-known and beloved account that is preserved in the Midrash, Shmot Rabbah, chapter 1, section 26. Every Jewish schoolchild knows its main points by heart. The Midrash relates, Pharaoh's daughter kissed, hugged, and loved that child as her own son, and she never took him out of the king's palace. The child's beauty was legend, and everyone desired to see him. Pharaoh himself kissed and hugged him, and the child would playfully seize Pharaoh's crown and place it upon his own head. When the Egyptian sorcerers saw, they said to Pharaoh, We are afraid that this child who takes the crown from upon your head and places it upon his own will turn out to be the very one that we foresee will one day snatch your dominion from you. Some of them recommended that Moshe be slain, and some suggested that he be burned. Yitro, Moshe's future father-in-law, was present, and he said, this child has no awareness of his actions. Test him by placing before him two bowls, one containing gold and the other glowing coals. If he grasps the gold, then it is a sign that he is aware and therefore must be killed. If, however, he grasps the coals, then we will know that he is unaware and therefore need not be dispatched. Immediately the two bowls were brought before him, Moshe stretched out his hand to grasp the gold, but the angel Gavriel pushed his hand away so that instead he grasped the coals. He lifted the coal to his mouth and burned his tongue 
and as a result he became heavy of mouth and heavy of speech, in accordance with what is reported in Shmot chapter 4, verse 10. The above account, witty and ironic, attempts to explain the source of Moshe's speech deficiency, the very excuse that he will so pathetically wield in the face of God's demands and eventual command that he return to Pharaoh to demand the release of the Hebrews. According to this Midrashic reading, Moshe's heaviness of mouth and speech did not signify ineloquence and inadequacy, but was rather a genuine physical disability. The relevant phrase in the Torah is sufficiently ambiguous to allow for either possibility, however. More to the point, this Midrash ascribes the source of this deficiency to a pivotal event in Moshe's childhood. He becomes inarticulate as a direct consequence of childly reaching for Pharaoh's crown. But the main thrust of the Midrash is to throw open a window on the mysterious workings of divine providence. Pharaoh's beloved daughter, stricken with the milk of human kindness, serenely opposes her father's brutal edict and rescues the future deliverer from the depths. The God-King himself, a potent tyrant, so consumed with fear of the Hebrews, so obsessed with preventing their insurgency with his own hands, tenderly embraces the future instrument of his downfall. The suspicious sorcerer sense the danger augured by the child's innocent reaching, but are unexpectedly foiled by the convincing advice of Yitro. Moshe himself, if not for the invisible angel's gentle but firm redirection of his hand, would have portentously seized the gold and sealed his fate for doom. The implication of all of the above is clear in the Midrashic reading. God's will cannot be thwarted. Even as the Hebrews continue to hopelessly toil, even as the cruel Pharaoh is busy devising the next outrage, even as a child naively frolics unaware, even as a thousand million small and great calculations, choices, and counter-decisions are unconsciously conceived and imperceptibly executed, the relentless redemptive process incrementally and murkily unfolds. Considered in this light, the pivotal episode of the Midrash is startlingly recast. The import of the bowl of gold is obviously clear to Yitro, the sorcerers, the pharaoh, and the reader. It suggests pharaoh's golden crown. If baby Moshe reaches for the gold, then either he demonstrates an unconscious ambition for the throne, or else the gods, as it were, show a veiled predilection for his ascendancy. But what if he reaches for the coals? What are the onlookers to make of Moshe's preference for the glowing embers? To ask the question differently, why does the Midrash offer a bowl of burning coals as the counterpoint to Pharaoh's glitter, 
rather than any other of innumerable possible objects of fascination for the child's wide eyes. Fortunately, we have at our disposal a number of references that can be furnished as the background biblical source for this Midrash. At least one of them offers such a striking parallel that its connection is undeniable. When Jeremiah, the first temple prophet, is charged with his mission to call upon the people of Israel to reject their evil ways and to return to God, he is reluctant and afraid. I said, O God, Lord, I know not how to speak, for I am but a lad. But God responded, Do not say that you are a lad, for concerning everything that I shall send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not fear them, for I am with you to save you, says God. God sent forth his hand and touched my mouth, and God said to me, Behold, I have put my words into your mouth. Behold, I appoint you this day to the nations and to the kingdoms to pronounce displacement, demolishment, destruction, and ruin, building and planting. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. When the prophet Yechazkel is called upon to address his exiled compatriots by the rivers of Babylon, towards the end of Jeremiah's futile activity, he is overawed by the terrifying vision of the divine chariot. Bowed by the prophecy, he is lifted to his feet by God's spirit, and then he is addressed. God said to me, Son of man, I send you to speak to the people of Israel to those rebellious tribes who with their ancestors have defied me until this very day. I send you to the stubborn and hard-hearted children, and you shall say to them, Thus says God, Lord, whether they listen to you or not, for they are rebellious, they will know that a prophet was among them. As for you, son of man, hearken to what I say to you. Be not rebellious as that house of rebelliousness. Open your mouth and consume that which I give to you. I then saw a hand sent to me, and in it was a written scroll. He opened it before me. It was written on both sides with lamentations, dirges, and weeping. He said to me, Son of man, consume it, this scroll, and go and speak to the house of Israel. I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, your stomach will consume this scroll, and with it your innards shall be filled, and I ate it. And while in my mouth it tasted as sweet as honey. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 3. In both cases, a reluctant prophet is coerced to face the unreceptive people of Israel. That prophet is made strong by a divine oath of support, and he is told to be steadfast and brave. In both cases, the taking of the mission is initiated by God and symbolized by his placement of some sort of concretized communication into the prophet's mouth. The prophet is, is, called, is called upon to verbally convey to the people the divine message that he has received. God's harsh words that have been placed in his mouth and internalized in his belly. As the story of Parshat Shmot unfolds, Moshe's extreme reluctance to convey God's words will be met 
by God's uncompromising insistence that will in the end prevail. It is, however, the account of Yeshayahu, Isaiah, who was active some 100 years before Jeremiah, which offers the most astonishing analog to this Midrash. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw God seated upon his lofty throne and his train filled the sanctuary. Fiery angels stood at his side. They called to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the God of legions. The whole world is filled with his glory. I said, Woe is to me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And now my eyes have seen God, King of legions. One of the fiery angels flew over to me, and in his hands was a glowing coal that he had fetched with tongs from the altar. He touched it to my lips, and he said, This has touched your lips, so that your transgression has been removed, and your offense atoned. I heard the voice of God saying, Who shall I send? Who will go for me? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, go and tell this people, you hear but do not understand, you see but do not perceive. So shall it be, until the city shall be deserted without inhabitants, the houses bereft of people, and the land utterly desolate. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Here, the prophetic message is explicitly described as a cleansing glowing coal, which is touched directly to the prophet's lips through the agency of an angel that transports it. In the case of Moshe and the bull of coals, it was the angel Gabriel who redirected his hand so that he grasped the fiery ember and brought it to his mouth, becoming, however, tongue-tied as a result. The implication of our reading is clear. The stark choice confronting young Moshe is not simply the option of seizing Pharaoh's crown, or else remaining a privileged adopted son. As if the ball of glowing coals is nothing more than a childish trinket, attractive to his inexperienced eyes. Here, the divine imperative imposes a more severe choice, either to opt for the seeming security of gold and to perish or to choose the burning fire of God's word and to survive. Like the other protagonists in the Midrash, who try as they might, cannot prevent, hold back, or even delay the process of Israel's redemption, Moshe too will be powerless to reject his pivotal role in that redemption's unfolding. In spite of his protests, above his objections, in the face of his paralytic reluctance that will become obvious as the Parsha unfolds, he will go to Pharaoh bearing God's fiery demand, and he will prevail. Oftentimes, like young Moshe, we make the mistake of reaching for the pot of gold, fame, fortune, or simply a pursuit or deed that can secure for us momentary security or satisfaction, but carries no ultimate meaning or eternity. If we are indeed fortunate, an angel, an event, 
a chance encounter may redirect our hand and bring us to the realization that to choose the gold may not only be against our best interests, but may actually be a betrayal of our real mission and task in this world. God's word beckons to us as well, but it is not offered without effort. Its warmth and its heat, its light and its illumination can sustain us and guide our path. But choosing it may entail difficulty, the seeming grief of giving up the glittering option that could be ours in its stead. But when ultimate questions of life meet life's meaning and direction, our role and purpose are sincerely addressed, real choices must be made. It is not always possible to have it all. As an archetype, Moshe represents the notion of each and every person standing addressed by God and called upon to provide intelligible answers to ultimate questions. We are all charged with at least our own personal mission that cannot be forsaken. Like Moshe and the prophets who followed, Yeshayahu, Yirmiyahu, and Yechezkel, let us also overcome self-doubt, fear, and uncertainty to embrace the fiery word of God that alone can sustain. Shabbat Shalom. We thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This podcast is sponsored by Amy Fox and Martin Griffel and family in memory of our mothers, Sally Fox, Zichrona Livracha, and Marion Griffel, Zichrona Livracha. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. Be sure to subscribe with us at Spotify or by visiting at elma.pardes.org. Tune in next week to listen to Tova Leah Nachmani as she discusses Parashat Va'era. Thanks for listening.